welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. Today we're looking at a small section of O's Manual chapter 58 covering myasthenia gravis. I don't think I've ever looked after a true myasthenic crisis in the ICU, likely because they're well managed by their neurologist on an outpatient basis or well managed from an anaesthetic perspective when they do need operations done. I have, however, made this diagnosis twice kind of de novo in the ED, or at least I have admitted him with that as a leading diagnosis, so it is out there. It does make excellent exam level material as there's some interesting physiology and there's kind of these compare and contrast type tables to be made comparing with other neuromuscular diseases. To give a flavour of what you might see in the emergency department, and most of these patients will rarely need um, ICU, it's typically a presentation of some kind of cranial nerve issue, typically with ptosis and um, maybe complaints of diplopia, sometimes with some speech or some swallowing issues. And the cardinal feature of the neurodysfunction is fluctuating weakness, and typically this is described as fatigability. For example, the ptosis isn't too bad in the morning, but by afternoon it's much worse. Involvement of bulbar muscles, so by the way bulbar being an archaic name for the medulla and the cranial nerves that stem off it. Um, So involvement of bulbar muscles should be recognised as a bit of a concern given that swallowing and airway protection fall under the remit of cranial nerves 9 to 12. The edrophonium test that you may have heard about in medical school can be safely forgotten about as it is no longer recommended. On the other hand, the ICE test can be used as a cool demonstration of the physiology and in its essence, the ptosis that improves after having some ice in the eyelids would suggest myasthenia as a diagnosis. The pathophysiology of the illness is likely one of the more testable aspects of this condition. So myasthenia is an autoimmune disease where antibodies are made against acetylcholine receptors in the postsynaptic neuromuscular junction. And as a result, acetylcholine cannot bind to these receptors and therefore cannot complete the transmission of the neurological impulse to the muscle. The ice test works because neuromuscular transmission is apparently more efficient at lower temperatures. Once the diagnosis is made, you can look super smart by thinking about your thymus as thymomas are found in about 15% of people with antibody positive myasthenia gravis. Many more are found to have some kind of abnormality in this normally neglected and unloved um, little gland. As an outpatient, these people will typically be established on peridostigmine, a nifty medication that potentiates the remaining acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, and they are usually immunosuppressed on some kind of steroid or maybe some azathioprine. Some may have had their unsuspecting thymus removed in the interim. And in the ICU, we're likely to see someone in myasthenic crisis. This is commonly seen when tapering immunosuppressives or when faced with some sort of acute stress, like spending time under anesthesia while a surgeon ectomizes some part of your body. There are also a large list of drugs that we commonly misprescribe that can mess people up in addition. The fundamental feature of a myasthenic crisis will be respiratory insufficiency. This is defined as need for non-invasive ventilation or intubation. Remember, it's unusual for myasthenia to affect respiratory muscles, so if it is, you're looking at big trouble. Expect this to be a quiet, undramatic sort of respiratory failure. Forced vital capacity and cough will quietly disappear without any of the usual increased work of breathing that we're used to seeing um, and we're used to using for quantifying respiratory failure. Hence, they look fine until they're really not. There are a variety of vital capacity cutoffs described as reasons or indications to intubate, but as discussed in the Guillaume Barret post, these are somewhat arbitrary. Um, for exam purposes, a vital capacity of 15 mils per kilogram is certainly a good red flag to keep in mind. Uh, conveniently, that same number can be spouted for a question on Guillaume Barret syndrome also. 
without getting into the weeds on neuromuscular um, blockade and myasthenia, um, for a non-depolarizing agent like rocuronium, you can expect the effect to last much longer. So people have suggested you use a smaller dose. Um, given that if they're being intubated in the ICU, then the prolonged effect is much less of a concern as you're not planning to take the tube out any time in the next few hours. But just be sure that you're running the sedation, which of course you always were, weren't you? And once they're in the ICU and they're sick enough to be tubed, um, we need to chart ourselves and chart the patient a way out of this mess. The key treatments for both real life and for examinations are going to be plasma exchange or IVIG. Plasma exchange removes all the nasty antibodies that are causing the trouble. The trouble. Um, IVIG, on the other hand, does something akin to witchcraft, um, but also probably binds the antibodies in addition. There is no clear data favouring one over the other, with the only RCT so far being neutral that I could find, but the trend, um, it seems, is towards plasma exchange as the treatment of choice. As is typical for these immune-binding removal-type therapies, they need an immunosuppressive chaser to stop production of more autoantibodies. Typically, this is going to be steroids, and typically, you'll not be the one making the decision anyhow. The more interesting question for us is time to resolution. A commonly quoted median is two weeks of invasive ventilation. This is much shorter than might be expected for a Guillain-Barre syndrome case, um, where it is not uncommon to intubate and do the trachea on the same day, given the expected course. For myasthenia, it may be reasonable to give them some time to assess response to treatment before committing to the tracheostomy. In terms of medications to be cautious with, the list is quite long, but the commonly implicated bad actors here include neuromuscular blocking agents, aminoglycosides, lefluoroquinolones, um, but unfortunately crowd favourite magnesium uh, is more likely to cause neuromuscular weakness than usual here. Finally, it's worth um, knowing that there is such a thing as a cholinergic crisis described in myasthenia that is due to excessive cholinergic effects from being overdosed on pruritostigmine. It is vanishingly rare at this stage, and its interest is mainly in the fact that it forms another cause of respiratory failure in the myasthenia patient that you might mistake for a myasthenic crisis. But if you're a betting man or woman, and in medicine, sure, that's what our job is, we're betting men and women all every day, then if your myasthenia patient has respiratory failure, it's going to be the myasthenia rather than the cholinergic problem almost every time. For references in this, certainly some of this is taken from O's Manual Chapter 58, but also up to date has an excellent little review article that covers lots of material relevant to this. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.